Today we are continuing in the book of Romans. Uh, it's our second sermon and we'll preach there. And we're talking today about Gentile sinners. You know, in the course of just a few decades, much of this world has slid perilously close towards complete moral bankruptcy. Yes, children. Uh, all those going to children's church, please head that way now before I get lassoed and run out of dodge. But it really is true that uh, it's just been a few decades that, that this world that we know it is, uh, has just slid really, really close to complete moral bankruptcy. In our country alone, this slide is fairly easy to trace. So in the 1960s, the 1970s, the convergence of second wave radical feminism, no-fault divorce, and the birth control pill helped set the stage for much of the chaos that we're seeing right now. So in a tangible way, these movements help separate sexual pleasure from procreation and thus did irreparable harm to the family. And we know and we see in 2015 the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Obergefell versus Hodges that marriage cannot be restricted to one man or one woman. This law fabricated by the U.S. Supreme Court redefined marriage on man's terms, not God's, the holy designer. And so the downhill slide over just nine years has been Breathtaking. The elite education establishment knows better than you, the parents, what's best for your children. Young children are taught to ignore nature and common sense and embrace the lie that they are, there are no moral or biological absolutes. Instead, they're taught that drag queen story hours in public libraries is normal. We no longer have pregnant women, we have pregnant persons. We have to check blocks on job applications indicating our sex that was assigned to us at birth. Female athletes are losing to men pretending to be women. How in the world did this come to be? Well, this trajectory is not new. This downward spiral into morass is as old as time. Now listen, as biblical Christians, we don't believe that history is circular, right? We believe that history is linear. It's Purposeful. It's moving towards a planned and meaningful conclusion. But we also know along this linear line, we know that there's nothing new under the sun, at least according to preacher Solomon. In other words, historical trends and trajectories recur along this linear timeline. Right? So we're moving in a linear way, but there are things that just 
that just happen, seem to happen over and over. In fact, this is one great way to study the book of Revelation. I know we're not doing that now, but, but we see, though, over this time, this, this linear travel, there's, there's this recurring kind of pattern of immorality and so forth. Abject immorality seems to get more intense as history marches on, but moral depravity is not new. You do remember that God destroyed human civilization once, right? He also did the same thing to Sodom and Gomorrah. So what I'm saying is that while our world has reached new moral lows, it's not a new phenomenon. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, reveal to us man's moral slide into unrighteousness and how it occurred. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, and if you're able, would you please stand in honor of God's Word. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of righteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, 
ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Those are some really sobering words. Father, thank you for preserving your word for us. Oh God, be exalted. Please open our minds, our hearts to your word. Father, help us to better see the darkness so we'll better understand the light. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So we looked last week in Paul's introduction to Romans, and he talked in that introduction, those first 17 verses, about um, a righteousness from God that is about God's righteousness, but it is more than that. It is something that God possesses, a righteousness that He will eventually uh, give or credit to our account. So that's the good news of the gospel. But now beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 and stretching all the way through chapter 3 verse 20, Paul is going to make the argument why this righteousness from God is absolutely necessary. It's necessary for Jews, it's necessary for Gentiles as well. So today what we're going to talk about is we're going to discuss why it is that Gentiles need this righteousness from God. Why is it that Gentiles need salvation? The short answer is this, you'll never be saved until you know that you are lost. So the argument then here, as Paul aptly does, is fairly logical. So today we're going to track Paul's case against the Gentiles with three statements. Okay, so if those of you take notes, it's going to be number one, number two, number three, pretty straightforward. First of all, the first statement is this, God has revealed His wrath or His holy anger against Gentiles. Well, first of all, let's talk, what is a Gentile? What was a Gentile? Gentile is the English word that comes from the Latin word that means family, clan, or people group. The Old Testament Hebrew word that's translated as Gentile is the word goy or goyim, which simply means the same thing. It means nations or people groups that are not Jews. Okay, remember that. The Greek word, the Greek equivalent of that is the word ethnos, which we get the word ethnic from. But it basically people groups, nations, tribes, or whatever it may be that are not Jews. So what Paul's readers would have understood as he's reading this is that a Gentile was anyone that was not from Abraham's bloodline. I want to go back just a little bit and make sure we're all up to speed on this. Never want to t- take for granted that, that all of us here understand the, the main ideas This going through the Bible. We know this, that the Bible is the story about God redeeming or saving a people to Himself. 
You may remember that Abraham was living amongst pagans when God called Abraham out from that pagan nation, called them to go to a place that he didn't know, and Abraham did that. God says that I will bless you, I will make you great, and that he, he told Abraham through you, all of the nations, all of the people groups of the world would be blessed. God promised this. He showed this to Abraham. Do you remember the story where, where God calls Abraham together and he, to himself and he says, cut up a bunch of animals, put, a, put all their pieces on, on two sides, make an aisle, and, and we will walk down this aisle because that's the way that covenants were cut in those days. In those days, if, if two kings of nations would make a covenant together, they would do that. They would cut up a bunch of animals and that the two kings would walk side by side down the middle of that aisle with those bloody animal parts on either side of them, signifying to one another, if I, for, if I forget or I don't, I don't keep my end of this bargain, this covenant that we're making, this is what will happen to me. That's what it meant to cut a covenant. But you remember Abraham did that. God told Abraham, cut up the animals. And God cut up the animals. Abraham cut up the animals. Put them on either side. And what happens? You remember? Yes. The Bible says that, that Abraham fell into this stupor. And it, while in this stupor, God in this vision of, of a smoking pot cauldron kind of lantern or, or whatever, that this lantern passes down that aisle all by itself. Abraham's not walking there. What's the significance of that? God gave this Abrahamic covenant saying, I, I am swearing to myself that this is what is going to happen. That through your bloodline, Abraham, all of the nations of this world will be blessed. It's not about you, Abraham. It's not about your ability to keep this covenant. I established this covenant of my own. And so Abraham's son was Isaac. Isaac's son was Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. He gave him 12 sons and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. Through God's mighty hand, Israel ends up in Egypt. They prosper. They become large. There, there arises a Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph. And now they're in captivity for 400 years until God raises up this prophet Moses. And Moses comes and leads the people out of Egypt. But while they are wandering around in the desert, God through the Mosaic Covenant creates a people for Himself. He makes Israel into a nation. He gave them Ten Commandments and other laws that would help them to live their lives in the Promised Land. This was given to the Jews, how they were to live as God's people in the promised land. But God didn't do the same for all the rest of the peoples on the face of this planet. He didn't create, He didn't establish this kind of covenant, this, this Mosaic covenant with the rest of the people. This was for the Jews. This is for the Jews who were of the, the bloodline of Abraham. He didn't do it for the Gentiles. So, think logically for a moment. It begs the question, can Gentiles who don't have the law be guilty before God? They didn't have it written down on, on a stone tablets. God didn't meet with the Gentiles on a mountain and give, him the, give them the law. 
So why do Gentiles need the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verses 18 through 32 answer that question. Now, as you may have been, you may have perceived, you may be even wondering this. How do we know that verses 18 and 32 are to the Gentiles and not to Jews? How, how is that? Very quickly, very briefly, won't spend a lot of time on this, but understand uh, through chapter 1, especially 18 through 32, Paul uses the third person plural. You just look at the number of times he says they, them, they, them. You can just go back, we won't look at it now, but he says it many times. But beginning in chapter 2, Paul changes. He's no longer using the third person plural. He, he starts using the second person singular. Look at what he said in verse, just chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you, that, that's you singular, therefore you have no excuse, O man. And the rest of chapter 2 is about you, 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 and you. And then look in verse 17 of chapter 2, what he says. Verse 17 he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and so on and so forth. So it's very plain that Paul is talking about Gentiles in the second half of chapter 1 and about Jews in chapter 2 and part, in, uh, part of chapter 3. Okay, so that's how we know, that's how we're going to talk about Gentiles this morning. So that just kind of to summarize that very first point, we conclude in verse 18, Paul simply matter-of-factly revealed that God has revealed His wrath against the Gentiles. So let's follow his argument now with the second statement, and that is this. God has revealed His wrath against Gentiles because they suppress God's truth. So the first point is God has revealed His wrath against Gentiles. Matter-of-factly, that's what He comes out and tells us. But now we ask the question, well... Um, why? Why is it that God is revealing His wrath against the Gentiles? Remember, they're, they're not received, they didn't receive uh, Moses' Ten Commandments and so forth. So he's answering that question, why? Let's start off by answering this question. What does Paul mean by God's truth? It's not the Mosaic Covenant, it's not the Ten Commandments. Well, by God's truth here in Romans chapter 1, Paul is referring to natural truth, natural theology, general revelation. It's, it's those truths of God that God has revealed to every person who has ever lived on this earth without even opening a Bible. People refer to that as natural theology or general revelation. You see, God says to the inner man without ever having to open a Bible. Man, do you see the planets? Do you see the planets and how they are revolving, making circuits around our sun? God says, man, do you understand? I made that. Oh man, do you see how large the earth is? This is a big earth. But man, did you know that it would take 1.3 million earths to fill up the sun in volume? Did you know that, man? But man, I bet you don't know. Wait, there's more, says God. Did you know it would take 5 billion suns to fill up the largest known star in the galaxies? 
1.3 million earths to fill up one sun, and then 5 billion suns to fill up the largest star known in the, solar, in, in the, in the galaxies. God says to man, I did that. Oh man, do you see the, the Milky Way? The galaxy of which our solar system is part of? Oh man, did you know that the Milky Way is it's, it's pretty big? In fact, it's 100,000 light years across. And for people like me, I don't understand what all that means. But a light year is the, is the distance that light travels in one year. Anybody know how fast light moves? Y'all are kind of close, but, but yeah, you know it starts with a one anyway. 186,000 miles per second is how fast light moves. Think about this now. Think about it. Light travels 186,000 miles in a second. And that, so that's a light year. So if you just kind of do all the math, so it's like, what does that mean going across the, if we're measuring the distance of the Milky Way? It means this. Nine trillion, nine trillion miles is how far light will travel in one year. You got that? You with me so far? One year. I just told you they say the Milky Way is 100,000 light years across. So multiply 9 trillion times 100,000 and that's how big just the Milky Way is. And astronomers tell us they don't know how many galaxies but they estimate 200 billion to a trillion known galaxies out there. Does that make you feel like teeny tiny? And God says, oh man, teeny tiny you. I made that. Or how about this? You ever smell lavender? You ever smell bacon when it's sizzling? Or do you ever smell God's favorite, gardenia? God says, oh man, I made that. Fabergé has no clue how to replicate those smells. But you marvel in awe as you cradle a little baby in your arms. And God says, I created that baby. Or you see the leaves in the fall and you smell the burning leaves and God says, yep, that's my idea too. Or you fear the raging seas and the force of hurricane winds and God says, those hurricanes, those tornadoes, those rains move at my command. He looks at man and he says, Oh man, you discovered DNA and the human genome. Aren't you smart? I made it. And then God would look at us and say, Oh man, can you explain how the human eye works? 
or the brain or the ear? Do you know when every bird falls to the ground or the number of fish in the sea or how the oceans know to stop so far? Do you know that, old man? I do, God says. But y'all, besides all of this, there is an inherent sense of right and wrong planted in the minds and consciousness of every human being. We never have to teach the succeeding generations the badness of murder, cheating, adultery, lying, stealing, or any other moral vice. God's law was written on Adam's heart. It's written on ours as well. And it pounds away forcefully. That, that law of God that is on our hearts that we feel at all times, God did that. God's truth is revealed to all people through nature. Nevertheless, the Bible tells us man suppresses God's truth. We just pick it up here in, in verse 18. It says, Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, so they are without excuse. Verse 20. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Man's bent is to worship the creation and not the Creator. Man, listen, the Bible is saying here, man actually chooses to hold down, to suppress God's truth. His futile mind seeks to believe the lie, knowing the whole time he's holding the truth down. So God has revealed his anger against the Gentiles because they've suppressed the truth that God has revealed to them in nature. But third, God has revealed his wrath by giving men over to the desires of their hearts. So that the first question we answered was, well, why did God reveal His wrath? The reason why is because man suppresses the truth, believes the lie. So now we're asking the question, well, how does He do that? How is it that God is revealing His wrath right now? And that is, He's doing that by giving men over to the desires of their hearts. See, y'all, God's wrath, God's anger, God's punishment in this age right now when we are living is simply to let sin take us where we want it to go. Look what it says in verse 24 again. Therefore, in other words, we've suppressed the truth, we're believing the light. Therefore, because, because of that, God gave them up in the lust, lust of their hearts to impurity the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, we keep stamping on God's head. We keep pressing down the truth. It says this, God gave them up for the third time to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and so forth. Notice in just those few verses how that God does what? God gives up. He gives up to uncleanness. He gives us up to vile passions. And He gives us up to a debased mind. And this, y'all, I suggest is the trajectory towards moral bankruptcy that we see all around us. And once the downward spiral is unrestrained. It's like water. It seeks the lowest point. point. It flows towards the worst case scenario. So God is pretty much saying this. God is saying, okay, you want to ignore my love and my care for you? That's fine. Do you want to ignore my provisions for you? That's fine. Do you want to play God? Okay, it's all yours. Don't say I didn't warn you. It's very important that we see this in our culture. Notice how the sin of homosexuality is particularly heinous and highlighted by Paul as proof positive that man has completely lost his moral compass. Some would argue, why doesn't the church speak more against things like adultery or sex before marriage, or gluttony. Look how many obese Christians there are. Well, a faithful church does faithfully preach law and gospel. But listen, homosexuality is such a heinous sin because it's against nature. It's the creature blatantly rebelling against God's design. Adultery is an egregious sin, but it's not against nature. Someone has famously written, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And I just add my little corollary to that. Sin Listen, sin can bring you pleasure, but it will never, 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 never make you happy. There's a world of difference. So, the tendency is, listen, the tendency is to look at verses 24 down through 31 and go, Wow, man, what awful sinners! Do you understand? That these verses describe me and you outside of Christ. That's how God sees you and me outside of Christ. I mean, just look again. D drop down to... Uh, look in verse 29. This, this is the natural man. This is us without Christ. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Your evil, your covetousness. Malice, they're full of envy, 
murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips. They're slanderers. They're haters of God. This is you and me. Do you understand this? Outside of Christ, this is who we are. Outside of Christ, you want to stand before a holy God and He were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? And you're, you don't know Jesus and you say something as idiotic as, well, I've not been all that bad. Y'all, the, uh, the die is cast. It's very plain. This is who we are. And so there's no really way that we can hear God's case against the Gentiles and conclude that deep inside, I'm really okay. You're not. God sees every heart. He knows what's going on in our life. Listen, and we think we've gotten to a place that, man, I'm really pretty good. No, we're not. Which we're saved. Look, if you're in Christ, this is the sweetness of the gospel, church. Please understand it. The sweetness of the gospel is this. When we have said yes to Christ, God, it's not us that's immediately like change. We still do dumb things. We still think, when we still sin, here's what changes the way God looks at us. We, we are in Christ so that immediately when we've received Christ, God no longer looks at us as sinners. He looks at us as saints. Not because we're doing so much better. Not because we're perfect. If the church ever really truly does embrace this and understand this is the gospel, that is so sweet. It is, so, it is such a release. It means... We need to hear the gospel preached every Sunday, not, not to unbelievers. Yeah, unbelievers need to hear that every Sunday, but we need to hear the gospel every single Sunday because it reminds us, you know, I'm serving God not in my own strength, and I'm going to heaven not because of how good I can be or how I perform for God last week, but because of what He's done for me. That's the gospel. So that a grandfather like me watching his little 10-year-old gymnast compete against a whole slew of other gymnasts, and I know she's getting ready to take first place, and I watch the only girl who has any chance of defeating my little granddaughter in secretly in my heart, I'm going to hope she wobbles on the balance beam. <laughs> and you look at me and you go, well, you, are pretty, you know you're just like that. You're just like it. I hope her bowl of chili is really not good. We wouldn't express that, but we know that's just who we are. And, we, and there's that tension that's within us. We're going, can I really be a Christian and think these kind of things? Absolutely, 100%, yes you can. And that, my friends, is what makes the gospel so pleasing. It makes the gospel worth shouting about. It makes the gospel worth singing about. It makes the gospel worth going and telling others about because it's not going and telling others you need to really clean up your act and come to Christ and live the rest of your life holy to get to heaven. No, it's because you go tell them, you know what? You'll never be that way. You're never going to be holy enough to please God. You receive Him by, by grace. You receive by faith what He's giving you. And that is the sweetness of the gospel, church. Well, there, there's probably some people here. I know there are. It's not probably. I know there's some people here. You've not really realized, or you maybe are realizing your precarious position because you've not fled to Christ for forgiveness. You're going to die and stand before a holy God and He would ask you, why should I let you into heaven? You have no biblical reason whatsoever. 
And remember this, outside of being in Christ, God sees you, my friend, as He's described in verses 24 through 31. This very day, that can change. This very day, you can say, God, I've heard the truth, and I believe that truth is real. And God, this very day, I want to... I want to Turn away from my sin. I want to turn away from myself. And the only way that I even have been told is just to turn by faith to you and receive your forgiveness. God can do that. And God will do that for you this very day if you've not given your life to Christ. If you've not repented. You have that chance this very day. I would pray, I would urge you not to walk out of this church building with any uncertainty of where you'll spend eternity. And in just a few moments as we sing and you, you just say, you know what, I, I want to make that decision today and I want to tell somebody about it. I want to pray with somebody. I'm going to give you that opportunity today. But before we move on, as we reach the end of chapter 1, I want you to notice the final turn of this downward spiral. Did you, did you, did you follow what he says in verse 32? He pretty much says, God's given them up, God's given them up, God's given them up. And the end is this. Not only do those who practice such stuff deserve to be destroyed, they know God's truth, they suppress God's truth, and listen, they foist this freedom, so to speak, on other people, and they rejoice when others follow suit most of you are old enough to remember the gay rights arguments before Obergefell we were told to just be tolerant we don't want everything just, just be tolerant and recognize us in some way just give us a little civil ceremony. That's all we need. We, ju we just want to be counted as people. We're not going to try to make you do anything, but just give us our little bitty slice of the pie, right? Do you remember that? But that's never where it stops, is it? Next, they wanted a law to make marriage legal. Just legalize marriage, and that's all we want. It's not going to harm you. It's not going to mess with your life. We're not going to get in, in your face. Just give us what is ours. Legalize marriage. But no. Now, if you don't celebrate the whole sexually perverted revolution, you are the intolerant bigot. It's you that's the problem. Just ask Jack Phillips, owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado, if you don't believe what I'm saying. So, as we land this airplane, I want to make a final application. Really, because of the statement of a very well-loved and liked pastor, much has been said and written about on social media and in Christian circles in the past few weeks about whether or not a Christian should attend a gay wedding. 
initially I put together this really long response um, and I thought, no, you know, that's going to take another 30 minutes and uh, Granny would definitely be asleep then. Just playing, Granny. I thought, no, I don't want to do that. Let's just, let's just shorten this a little bit. But I, was, but, but, but I think it's important to understand that Christians must feel a tension when we deal with family and close friends who choose the homosexual lifestyle. We, we've got to live in the tension. You say, what do you mean? Well, it's, if you put the responses on a continuum, right? On one continuum would be totally affirming. My son, my daughter, my grandson, my granddaughter, my aunt, or whatever it may be, has chosen to have this gay wedding and has invited me to come and I am totally affirming. That's one end of the continuum. The other end of the continuum over here is how vile I revile my own son now. You are cut off. You should no longer use my name. You see those differences? And we tend to, people tend to be either way down there or way down here. You could almost liken it to the abuse on the continuum between grace and truth. Right? But you know, we live in that middle. There's tension. It's not that simple. We need to wrestle with these things. But let me just be very, very plain. As for attending a gay wedding or giving a gift, it would be wrong and ultimately unloving to attend a gay wedding or give such a person a gift. You see, by attending a wedding, a person is by definition affirming and celebrating that union. That is a union that the Bible is very, very plain about. The Bible, God has defined what marriage is, not our culture. So to attend a gay wedding and give gifts is, is de facto saying, I am agreeing, I am celebrating with you becoming one, so to speak, in a union that God says does not exist. And I say it would be unloving to do that. Listen, follow me here. I would say not even if the homosexual loved one, whether it's son or daughter or whatever, not just even if that person knows you are a follower of Christ, but I would say especially when that person knows that you are a follower of Christ. Because when you say, no, I am not attending, no, I am not giving you a gift, it is a reflection on your love, on your devotion for an almighty God, and that you are willing to stand in the truth of His holiness, especially, especially when it's your loved one that you're seemingly choosing against. This, my friends, is a gospel witness. And then... That loved one may try to suppress what's happening, but listen, deep inside, that loved one knows 
my mom genuinely loves God. And her faith that she talks about plays out for real in our lives. Y'all, that's a gospel witness. We need to wake up. Don't buy the lie. Listen, here's the lie. The lie is that by not going to this wedding, we are affirming what our loved ones already think. They, they, they're stereotyping Christians as bigots and judgmental. Do you understand? What I'm, do you follow what I'm saying? Don't buy that lie. Now, I, I don't, I'm sorry if I come across anger because that, that's not my intention. Y'all, I understand I don't even know you, most of you. I don't, but I know you, you are in these situations. These are happening all around us. And if it's not happened in your family yet, hold on because it's going to. And now you're going to be caught. It's easy when you're, when, when you don't, when you're not there. Right? You, it's easy to stand up here and preach and go, yeah, this is what you should do. You shouldn't go. But what about when the preacher's on children? I'm not saying this about my children, but what about you know, if your own grandchild comes to me and says, hey, Pops, you know what? Um, I think I'm gay. So what do you do? You grab him by the lapel and shake him and go, we didn't bring you up this way. How far is that going to go? Do you, so do you feel the tension, right? We're going to feel that tension, but I'm just telling what's very, very plain, especially as we just narrow it down to this one topic, attending a wedding. You, 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 you don't. You just don't. Well, there's a lot more I could talk about in this situation, but I don't want to get too far from this, the, the main idea here this morning. And that is God has revealed His wrath against Gentiles, even though they didn't have the law. God has revealed it through the things they see, the things that He's revealed to them in their hearts. They know what's right and that's wrong. Y'all, um, as we conclude now, um, you could call this an invitation, whatever you want to call it. You don't have to come forward or anything right there in your seat. And when we're all done today, I'll be in that room across the hall to, to talk if you don't want to come up here forward. But it may just be today that um, you're caught in a tension. You're, you're caught in a situation where you don't know which way to turn. Um, you just need God's wisdom. You just want to, maybe today you just need to come and you just want to come and pray about it. That, that's totally up to you. You may be battling temptation here this morning as a believer. You've been wrestling with something and, and, and the tempter just keeps coming. And, and just today, you want to just come and just pray, just lay it before the Lord. You don't have to do that here. You can do it in your pew. But God does draw us to decisions. We don't come to a worship service. We don't come to a preaching service and just listen and by osmosis just soak it in. Every preaching message should bring us to a point of some kind of decision. And all I'm saying is today, you may, if you want to, in that decision, in your mind, it helps you to come forward and pray. That's great. But if you're in your mind right there, we're in, in, your, in your pews, that's great too. But you need to make a decision today. But last, you may be one of those people that verses 24 and 31 describe. That's you. That's God. That's the way God sees you outside of Christ. And to think that you could die this very day and stand before a holy God. And he says, why should I let you into heaven? And you go, I've been pretty good. And he just starts reading verses 24 through 31 and says, no, this is who you are. Insolent, obnoxious, slanderer, a gossip, full of lust, all about yourself 
and nothing else. I don't know about you, I dare not stand before a holy God and bring my self-righteousness to Him. But thankfully, the good news is I don't have to. The good news is all I do is claim Jesus. I claim Jesus in His righteousness. And when by faith I receive Christ, I'm receiving His righteousness that God credits to my account. Isn't that sweet, church? So if you don't know that sweetness today, could very well be your day. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, I thank you for the, the people's patience this morning. Um, Father, we, we thank you that your word has reminded us that, um, that you're a holy God and that every one of us, um, all of us are sinners by nature. We thank you for Jesus. And Lord, this morning... Um, you just we just we just leave this whole uh, altar call prayer response to you, Lord. Father, we just pray that many decisions would be made in the pews or up forward or across the hall later on, but all for your namesake and all for your glory. Lord, please speak to our hearts. Open our eyes that have been shut oftentimes by ourselves and even by the enemy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.